We are live. Welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. Uh, this is the second webinar of our October 2015 series titled Doing Innovation, Empowering Young People for Tomorrow's World. If you're watching this, uh, please take a moment to share it with your networks. Um, I'm Craig Watkins, a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, the Moody uh, College of Communication, uh, and this webinar series is, is inspired in part by a new project that I've uh, launched in, in, in part uh, co-sponsored by uh, the Connected Learning Research Network of the MacArthur Foundation uh, called Doing Innovation, where we're looking at uh, the sort of emergent ways in which young people um, are engaging in, in all kinds of innovative practices, leveraging technology, new networks, uh, creative skills uh, to make uh, new kinds of innovative opportunities in, in the digital age. Um, throughout this series on Connected Learning TV, we'll explore the landscape of the new economy uh, and consider what kinds of skills and resources young people need as they seek to build uh, more robust pathways to opportunity uh, and sort of creative uh, kinds of practices and communities. Uh, today we're um, here with a, a pretty amazing group of young scholars uh, who are doing work that I'm uh, just absolutely thrilled to, uh, to, to be a part of in terms of both reading their work and, and also at developing sort of a community with them around a lot of the ideas that they're engaged in. Um, so I'll have them each introduce themselves here momentarily uh, and, um, and then we'll sort of um, jump into a conversation about their work and how it relates to uh, the different ways uh, the way in which our innovation economy uh, is shifting. Before we dive into our chat, uh, let's go over a couple of uh, quick details. Um, to those who are watching live right now, uh, we welcome your comments and questions through either the Twitter hashtag, uh, Connected Learning, or the Q&A feature that you should see within the video player. We'll do our best to address your questions here in the Google Hangout as they come in, so certainly feel free uh, if you're so inspired to send us questions, and we would love to try to integrate some of those into our conversation. Uh, this webinar is also being co-streamed at the National Writing Projects, EducatorInnovator.org. Uh, and before we begin, I'd like to give everyone a chance to introduce themselves. Um, Sophia, uh, how about you? Would you like to start? Sure. Thank you. Thanks so much for the invitation, Professor Watkins. It's a pleasure to be in the company of these great scholars today. Um, I'm Sophia Noble. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Information Studies in the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. And uh, my work is um, primarily concerned with um, information bias and um, stereotyping racism and sexism on the internet um, and uh, and also kind of corporate control over information resources and why we might be concerned about that. So I'm excited to be here and to be a part of this conversation. I also study um, hardware and software kind of in the public interest and maybe some of the emergent concerns we, we might have that undergird our creative economy. So excited to be here. Okay. Um, oh, okay. Uh, hi. Uh, this is Argin. Oh, who's what? You're fine. Go. Uh, okay. So I'll just go ahead. Um, so this is Argin Blut. Like Sophia, I'm really excited to be part of this uh, group of people to talk about creative economy, innovation, and its contradictions. Uh, so specifically, I'm interested in issues of political economy and media labor, and specifically, I've been doing research in the video game industry, and since I moved back to Turkey, I've been doing research in 
the soil paper industry and the labor process within it, um, mostly from an ethnographic uh, perspective. Uh, so I'm looking forward to this uh, conversation today with this really amazing uh, scholars as well. Amar? I thought it might be Andreas. Hi, my name is Amar Jean Christian. I'm an assistant professor in the Communication Studies Department at Northwestern University. And my work focuses on creative production and specifically creative production for television and the shifts in the digital age. So my first book focuses on independent web series creators as sparking various innovations in the production and distribution of television. Um, my current work involves applying some of those ideas to creatively producing work um, here in Chicago. I'm also thrilled to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Andres? Well, hello, everyone. Uh, this is Andres Lombana Bermudez uh, from uh, uh, the Bergman Center uh, for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Uh, I was a former uh, member of the team of the Doing Innovation uh, Research Project uh, in Austin, working with Craig and another uh, researchers. Um, I focus mostly on digital equity and Latino-Hispanic uh, youth. Uh, but also, I have been doing ethnographic work with uh, a community of indie game designers as well as with a hip-hop community. Uh, so I am interested in uh, creative labor and issues of innovation, specifically edge innovation or indie innovation. Okay. Great. So um, this is a wonderful group. Uh, we, um, we're looking forward to this conversation. And uh, let's just get started and, uh, and see how everything goes. Um, so about a month and a half or two ago, uh, Stephen Johnson, um, who writes a lot about um, innovation, the new economy, uh, the kind of rapid changes that are happening, uh, wrote a piece sort of asking the question, why the digital apocalypse never happened? Uh, and what he was referring to, right, was, a, was the concern amongst a lot of industry insiders, uh, mainstream artists. Uh, that with the rise of, of, of the internet, internet-based te technologies, peer-to-peer -peer sharing, streaming, all of the things that are happening in the technology landscape, that all of these things would eventually conspire against creativity, and that we, we really be would begin to see the demise of creative artists, creative work, uh, creative activity. Uh, and what he argues instead is that, uh, if anything, uh, creative labor, creative work, uh, the digital media arts, digital media production, are thriving uh, like perhaps no one could have ever anticipated. And there are a lot of reasons for that. This idea, right, that, that new technologies lower the barrier to entry, uh, that the distribution networks have been flattened, changed, altered in some very important ways, and that it has therefore um, inspired a whole new generation, a whole new wave of creativity uh, that he attempts to, to map out and discuss uh, in the context of that piece that he wrote for the New York Times Magazine. So I thought we might open up there in terms of thinking about um, just your own sort of, uh, maybe your, your response to that observation, perhaps critiques of that observation. Do you find it uh, a valid sort of assessment uh, that instead of seeing a reversal and a decline in sort of uh, you know, creative work, uh, that in fact with new digital technologies we're seeing the emergence of new kinds of creative producers coming on the stage uh, and therefore really transforming how we think about creativity uh, and innovation uh, in the digital economy today. Um, just initial thoughts, uh, reactions to, uh, to that observation by Stephen Johnson? 
Um, I can start. I was sympathetic to some parts of his argument and not some not so sympathetic to others. I think his description of the music industry was probably his best case study, um, and particularly this idea that we've been focusing on the major labels as indicative of the health of the music economy, when in fact plenty of people are musicians um, and are making money, but they're making money in local networks, right, or um, by touring the country and performing live. That strikes me as true, um, that in fact digital economies allow these smaller artists to get their name out there and actually build fan bases, even national fan bases, without these large corporations to help them out. And the corporations that have made money by selling CDs and more exclusive type properties um, are the ones who are struggling. I thought his case study for film, however, was quite um, complicated. He seemed to suggest that the success of certain mid-range films at the box office today is indicative of the health of the film economy, if we look beyond blockbusters. But he was talking about the mid-range films that actually get into theaters. And most of the theaters are now, take the space is taken up by these blockbuster films. So plenty of films are being made, but actually there's a whole wealth of films that are basically invisible to viewers. Um, and digital companies like Netflix, they don't necessarily pay um, what a major distributor would pay. Um, and I think the case is similar with television, where there's a lot of people who are outside trying to get in, even as the in industry itself is managing to sustain itself. Interesting. Um, Andres and Ergen, I know you both um, have been looking at what's happening in the, in the game sector and, and looking at um, various aspects of uh, emergent, uh, you know, this phenomenon of sort of smaller micro studios, uh, network studios, uh, sort of more independent uh, game design and creation. Um, so how does Steven Jensen's argument resonate, uh, at least from your perspective, in the, in the communities, uh, the industries, the sectors that you've been looking at as it relates to games, independent create, creative work, uh, and the new kinds of networks that are forming? I can go. Uh, so, so I think that the, the argument um, is, is true at a certain extent, right? Like we are seeing like a more production. There is like the tools definitely uh, have a increase the, um, like they have lowered the barriers to entry to the industry and we see like a lot of young people uh, being engaged with uh, different tools like uh, specifically like the Unity for instance uh, um, software that allows like for easy and fast prototyping as well as uh, distribution platforms. Uh, however, I think uh, what, what we are seeing also like with this increase of creativity and creative labor is also like a uh, uh, in the communities that I have been studying, although they have been very um, successful at developing certain kind of identities as, as the indie game developers and, uh, and also like very successful as joining uh, these kind of micro studios, uh, what we have not seen uh, is kind of this political organization or like unionization or addressing issues of uh, kind of a, like the precarity of their labor, right? So it's a lot of excitement for sure, and it's a lot of innovation happening, but it's at the level of aesthetics, uh, at the level of lifestyle, uh, at the level of even the spaces that these people is able to create when they come together as a community or as a public. But uh, what I am finding also in my research and as I go deeper in my analysis is that uh, there is this lack of um, um, addressing of um, the political context, right, uh, of, of this creative economy and like the new economy. So it's, it, it is innovative for sure, but 
perhaps they are not still addressing other issues that can be more effective at the at the at the level of politics and better conditions of labor. So that's what I have been finding. Um, I'll just I'll just follow uh, with those. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, I'll just follow with those comments, and I've been finding similar things in my previous research. Um, but even before I actually um, talk, you know, more about the specifics, I think what um, what the argument that you share with us uh, doesn't seem to get it. And and I haven't read the whole article, but um, you know, thinking about uh, poverty relations within which um, things that we call like you know creative economy, digital technologies are embedded with, and from which they uh, emerge, um, you know. I had to come to another house tonight just because my internet connection wasn't really good uh, for whatever reason. So in that sense, when we talk about things like creative economy, technology, we seem to be mostly talking about North America, Europe, right? So that's one thing to maybe kind of remind ourselves of, like, where are we talking about? Who are the actors? And in terms of, like, um, uh, the gaming industry, I, I um, what I have been finding out in my research that I was doing in uh, North America was <clears throat> even um, even a flagship studio of a major publisher, I found out in my research that people weren't necessarily feeling secure precisely because they were part of um, a bigger mechanism uh, that we uh, can call the stock market. So in, in terms of the investment decisions that the parent company was making, the people, the game developers that I was doing research with were not necessarily feeling secure, especially after things uh, went uh, down the hill, basically, after after uh, they were um, kind of finding out how the financial security they were really happy with wasn't forever. So, um, like, uh, um, like Andrea was mentioning, um, they were feeling precarious in terms of how they were uh, feeling about their job security. So in that sense, yes, technology in this digital age does lower entry barriers, but then again, uh, competition is tough. There are also lots of people uh, who constitute this reserve army of labor in terms of you know, lowering the wages, disciplining the labor force, uh, especially when it comes to um, uh, disciplines like um, video game testing, which is like a dream job within this industry. So I'll just be brief, but I think uh, we need to talk about like who are the actors, what kind of geographies are we talking about, and I'm sure Safia will have more on to say more more to say about um, issues of gender and race when it comes to the creative economy. Yeah, in fact, um, that's, that's a great uh, segue, um, Ergen, and thank you, um, Safia. Maybe you can help us pivot to a few things that have that have emerged already in, in the conversation. And that is, you know, uh, concerns or at least recognition of, of issues uh, around inclusion, uh, diversity in, in terms of participation, um, the kinds of pathways into the, these kinds of creative economies and innovation sectors, um, and how, you know, matters of race, how matters of gender, geography, age, uh, you, know, uh, you know, creative inclinations and taste. Um, there seem to be all of these different kinds of uh, social and political factors that are oftentimes woven into the fabric of, of these kinds of activities around creative labor, creative work, creative economy, uh, that can sometimes easily get uh, kind of obscured uh, or just ignored altogether. Um, and so, so I'm wondering, Sophia, from your perspective, um, you know, how might that, that more critical lens help us to understand some of the challenges associated uh, with uh, inclusion 
uh, diversity and participation in these new kinds of creative economies. Yeah, I mean, these are, I think, central to the conversation in terms of who gets to be creative, who gets to have access to the resources um, to uh, have their work be seen um, or have their participation be valued. And so this is, um, you know, I, I, I was fascinated also by the, the piece that you directed us to in the New York Times um, because I was thinking about these kind of um, intersectionalities, right? Who We know, for example, that in the most creative spaces that we think of in the technological realm, like Silicon Valley, um, that we have incredibly low um, levels of participation of people of color and women in, in the real, truly kind of creative types of work, which we might say are um, the spaces where ideas get to come to fruition. Um, so we have plenty of people working, for example, as custodians cleaning up um, offices in Silicon Valley, but we might not mark that labor as creative labor. That's part of kind of the creative industry of Silicon Valley, right? So um, we have very low levels of women participating in management. Um, there was a great piece that um, a colleague of mine, Heather Hiles, wrote um, for Recode, a blog post about black women um, getting access to venture capital, for example. She's been a very successful um, entrepreneur. She's raised about $12 million, and she's a standout. Um, for the most part, black women and other women of color don't get access to the resources that they need to, again, bring ideas and creativity into fruition, but certainly get to be in the more precarious um, aspects of the, um, the, the consumption and production parts of the creative economy. So I think this is really important. Um, you know, in my work, what I find is that there, on the internet, we still have kind of monopoly control of um, of distribution of ideas. Um, so, for example, uh, my work mostly looks at Google and its um, attendant kind of properties on the web. And really, if you aren't um, indexed by Google, if you aren't um, if you don't have a, a significant amount of capital to kind of work within the constraints of search engine optimization and such, you can be creative all day long and no one will actually find your work. Um, so I think this issue of um, visibility is incredibly important. You know, in the 90s and the 2000s, there was so much focus um, for people of color and women and people who are in the margins to just get on the internet um, and get your work out there and as long as it's on the web we can find it but we know in fact that only about 45% of the web is indexed um, by um, you know the largest search engine Google and um, there's an incredible amount of power relations laden in um, who gets to be uh, featured at the top of the kind of information pile and I think this is really important it's not just enough to be creative but um, and to have your kind of um, uh, uh, work alive in the world, it also has to be accessible. People have to be able to find it. And of course, um, capitalism and profitability governs what is most likely to be found. And that leaves a lot of people by the wayside. Yeah, I have to second um, Sophia's point there. Um, and I can just springboard off Google and another part of the company to YouTube, um, which you know, in, on the one hand, is indicative of the fact that so many more people do identify as creative and do identify as 
television producers, there's a tremendous diversity of content on YouTube, and yet Google itself and YouTube as a company is fairly blind to the innovations happening on its site. Um, I think in part because the creative heads of those spaces are in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York primarily, and the curators that they employ aren't as diverse as the people on the site. So you have YouTubers who claim that it's much harder to get on the homepage today if you are black um, or if you are a black woman, if you have an intersectional identity than it was when the site started out 10 years ago. In fact, at the latest VidCon, or maybe it was two VidCons ago now, um, one black YouTuber actually held his own fan signing um, outside of VidCon. He wasn't invited into VidCon and for the entire length of VidCon had, you know, several hours, 12 plus hours a day of fans coming up to him looking to get his signature um, because he was that famous but YouTube didn't know about him. Um, and we can see it in the kinds of things that happen on YouTube where you have a show like even Broad City, you know, that isn't that popular um, on YouTube but actually is a really good show. You know, they had to go to the mainstream networks curiously to get development deals. Same thing with Issa Rae um, and the artist that Issa Rae is developing. Um, Pharrell Williams got money from YouTube because he's a celebrity, and YouTube seems to recognize mainstream media talent or celebrity as significant. Um, but even then, they're not giving those people enough to really develop the talent on the site. So the second season of Awkward Black Girl is indirectly funded by YouTube, but in this really weird way where it was actually an advance on advertising instead of real production investment money. So she couldn't, you know, you'd have to get millions upon millions and millions of views to get that. Um, and YouTube isn't arguing for the value of the creative work happening it's on, on its own site to advertisers effectively enough. So once you get into the realities of the digital economy, and especially once you add in race, gender, and sexuality um, and class onto your assessment of its health, the picture just gets much more complicated and fraught. There's tremendous creativity and innovation happening, but those with capital to support it and sustain it um, aren't quite getting the money to the breadth of uh, talent that's actually available. No, I think that's interesting. Um, and it, so it raises questions about not only um, you know, means to, to, to production and this idea that digital technology, software, distributed networks sort of um, make it easier, right, for people to create content, to share it, to post it, to distribute it. But at least what, what, I, what, I'm, what I'm hearing, which is fascinating here, is that there, there are other forms of capital that are equally necessary, right, to establish a real strong presence uh, and relevance in this kind of creative economy, uh, social capital, cultural capital, uh, and these kinds of networks, um, you know, function uh, still in very important ways, uh, despite the fact that technology may be lowering the bar to entry, uh, to what extent does it also uh, open up opportunities for new kinds of networks uh, and new forms of social capital uh, to be acquired uh, and, and catalyzed uh, in ways that are, that are, that are quite significant? Um, you know, I also, in, in, when I read, read your work, each of you, um, you know, there, there certainly seems to be a, a recognition um, on your part and, and, and others as well and I'm thinking, for example, you know, Amar, of your your work on web TV and, and particularly women of color, um, you know, gay and lesbian a, a creative talent, uh, and how these alternative spaces and forms of, of creative work um, are sort of opening up at least new kinds of opportunities for new voices, new aesthetics, new narratives. Um, Andres, I'm thinking about your work in terms of um, you know these pop-up arcades. 
the degree to which um, these sort of micro uh, game studios are beginning to create uh, you know, new kinds of spaces for new kinds of games uh, that aren't necessarily uh, driven by uh, the, the kinds of um, uh, priorities of, of the commercial industries uh, and instead allow for greater artistic freedom, creative freedom in terms of what games are, what they might be, and, and how we play and experience games. And so I'm wondering, uh, if, uh, you know, maybe starting with you two, but, but Ergen and Sophia, certainly feel free to jump in as well. You know, how do you see the new sort of innovation economy and sort of new creative actors, if you will, coming onto the stage, sort of expanding our creative vocabulary, our aesthetics, the kinds of narratives uh, that are also emerging uh, in the creative landscape? Yeah, I think uh, that's that's like the positive also side of all this innovation, right? Like even if it's not totally... Um, Equal, but we are we are seeing like uh, in these communities of indie indie game designers, um, an, an aesthetic experimentation that is pushing pushing the boundaries of what a game means to be. So in this community of uh, juegos rancheros in Austin, they have been trying to cross boundaries with new media artists, sculpture uh, sculptures, uh, video installations. Uh, perhaps the most interesting genre that I have seen there uh, at, the, at the meetings and, and at the pop-up arcades that they make is like the like a sort of renaissance of multiplayer games. So imagine like in these spaces where these communities of indie game designers are getting together, they are also playing games together. So engaging in four or two two players games that allows them not only to be engaged in a kind of a public space and also kind of performative space playing in front of an audience, but also it allows them to socialize, meet each other while they are playing. And these kind of multiplayer games are also addressing a fascinating kind of theme or topic or, or genre that I have seen I haven't seen in games before and it's comedy and this issue of humor so these games are kind of funny so they are playing and they're uh, amusing themselves with these multiplayer games and kind of entertaining themselves um, and the audience so I think uh, these aesthetics of humor are being addressed in video games, especially for a, an adult public or a public of creative workers in a way that were not addressed before. I'm thinking about games like Pull Me, Push Me, or like Sports Friends, or Friends, or Joust. Uh, there are like several of them that I have found like very interesting, uh, and also in a way related to, to this kind of environment of precarity and the need of finding affection and motivation in a social group. So these games are also kind of vital aspect of these meetings and these pop-up video arcades. Um, I also kind of agree with Andreas that there are there is a sort of positive side to all of this. Um, and it is in the realm of aesthetics. It's not only in the realm of aesthetics, but that's one of the main... Hey, Mar, I think you're on... You... Sorry, I'm back now, right? <laughs> so one, one way to think about the positive sides of this is maybe contrasting some of the most successful corporate television shows today um, with what's happening on the web. So I'm thinking of um, Empire, which is, I believe, the most popular scripted show on uh, certainly broadcast television right now. Um, it doesn't outdo The Walking Dead in the ratings. And Orange is the New Black, which is Netflix's most popular show, they say or have said. Um, in the past. Both of these shows are probably among the most 
intersectional dramas um, that we've seen on television in a television narrative in terms of having characters at the center who are um, black and gay, black and queer, black and trans, um, black and even gender nonconforming in some cases. So on the one hand, it seems as though these narratives are incredibly progressive, but of course, once you take a deeper look at the narratives, at the aesthetics, um, you realize that empire has its own kind of conservative gender politics. Um, we have to sort of have black people be rich on television in order to be complicated, right? They can't actually be experiencing what most black people are experiencing, which is um, kind of real discrimination, policing, surveillance, et cetera. It's all kind of fantasized and hype and uh, sort of exaggerated. Um, with the case of Orange is the New Black, the center of the show, you know, is still a white woman. Um, and the creator of that show, Jinji Cohen, has said very explicitly that that was what she needed to get this uh, show sold, was to center it on um, a white woman. And some of those other characters are supporting or guest actors. They very rarely get to take over um, the narrative, especially now that we're three seasons into that show. By contrast, on the web, um, you have people who are queer and of color, who are black and trans actually making their own shows. And because of this, you can see almost instantly that stories are more sincere, they're more connected to real experiences, they get at the subtleties of living with that identity as opposed to the more fantastical, spectacular ways of living with that identity. Um, just before this call, I was watching a show called Eden's Garden about black trans men in, um, Brooklyn, in the Bronx, in Brooklyn. Um, and they are uh, describing all the very subtle ways in which interacting with different kinds of black men, different kinds of black women across sexualities actually um, helps them and forces them to define who they are in relation. Uh, it's really kind of interesting how you get to see different kinds of black trans men um, with different subjectivities. And this is what we see across the web. Um, and I think there's some of the best television stories being told right now. Um, if you look at uh, British filmmaker Cecile Amecki, whose show about two black women living in London, manages to get at the mundane of like trying to order ackee and saltfish, uh, this kind of staple Caribbean dish in London, while also talking about gentrification in London, right? And living in a world in which getting Lauren Hill tickets is just as important as eating ackee and saltfish is something that I haven't seen anyway on traditional television. Um, so there's tremendous creativity here, and I actually think there's a tremendous possibility for large web TV networks and broadcast networks to use this as a labor pool um, to start diversifying their industries. It's kind of baffling to me that you'll have shows um, on television that are predominantly majority but don't have a predominantly majority uh, writing staff. And all the numbers from the Writers Guild and the Bunch Center uh, at UCLA suggest that uh, diversity in writing writing rooms is growing, but at a glacial place. Same thing for gender um, equality. Whereas on the web, the talent is right there to be seen and picked up um, and invested in. Meanwhile, I will say the other positive side of that is that those creators are starting to organize um, very slowly and usually around particularly uh, determined or celebrity producers like Issa Rae, who has her own network, Color Creative, and um, released three 30-minute pilots last year that she's hoping to sell to networks. One of those was a black lesbian show, the other one a, a stoner comedy led by two black women, and then a dark comedy about a serial killer who happens to be a black man. Like, really innovative, interesting stories. Um, black and Sexy TV is get, getting people to spend $7 a month 
for original kind of indie rom-com, indie romantic dramas um, about uh, mostly black straight people. Um, for many years, Chicago's had its own lesbian TV network, Tello, with people spending $4 a month for a short-form web series about uh, lesbians. So there are sort of corners where people are starting to organize production and try and get people paid on a more consistent and sustainable basis. Um, but I think mean, the reality of the American media marketplace is, is that those things do need some kind of institutional support at some point or some kind of major marketing support in order to get larger number of people um, interested and aware of their activities. Uh, fantastic. The, um, so we've, we've got some questions that are streaming in from, uh, from Twitter. Let me, um, let, me, let me present one of them to you and uh, certainly feel free, uh, any of you, to, uh, to respond to this. Um, so the, the, the question uh, sort of proceeds this way. Um, you make great points about access uh, slash means of production and around what counts as creative labor. However, the structural barriers you describe seem almost insurmountable. Um, do any of you have thoughts on specific ways forward, uh, and where are the spaces for transformation? Um, I think we've, we've, we've made some references to that, but maybe uh, addressing this question more, more, more directly, more explicitly. Uh, any thoughts about um, where those spaces are, uh, the transformational opportunities that exist, uh, any examples, models out there that, uh, that any of you might be able to, uh, to identify and, and perhaps share with us here? It's always tough getting impromptu questions that we aren't necessarily uh, uh, had not anticipated. But uh, if, if you have any thoughts, um, we can certainly uh, you know come come back to that question um, later on and, and maybe towards the end. I think I think as I understand the question, right, we, we might also interpret it as um, you know given the, the kinds of barriers that we that we've laid out here, um, you know what. Uh, if, if we were to envision a world anew, um, a world where, where new kinds of possibilities were, were, were more likely to be made real uh, in these sort of innovation uh, sectors and economies, um, you know, what might be the, uh, the, the entry points, uh, the pathways, the breakthroughs that really energize, uh, you know, a, a kind of momentum, uh, you know, creative communities, uh, expressive practices, alternative industries, uh, that um, that might create what we might consider a more equitable kind of creative economy uh, landscape. Yeah, it's really a, a profound question for me because I think where where I see creativity lacking is in our ability to kind of critique the landscape powerfully, um, you know, such that we might create a different kind of world anew, as you phrased it. Um, so you know, we have I, I loved. Um, Amara, you know, the things that you're talking about, um, Amar, um, for the um, the kinds of, like, new aesthetics and representations that we're seeing um, move to the fore on the web, but, you know, the degree to which they can circulate to have us impact society is really important. Um, I mean, I think when I think about art and creativity in particular, um, maybe if we talk about it in terms of a, a different era, a pre-digital era, um, on many levels, art and creativity is about kind of our ability to um, cast a light on the kinds of social inequalities that we've talked about today, um, the kinds of concerns that we have um, in our world that are very real, and 
Um, what's been interesting to me to watch in the kind of the creative landscape has been about kind of insulating ourselves from those critiques or um, our ability to kind of cast a light on you know global social inequality. Um, I mean, in other parts of the world, um, you know, we're seeing people respond to austerity measures um, in ways that you just don't even see a hint of in the United States yet, with maybe the exception of the Occupy movement and Black Lives Matter right now. So I think that there are some, um, um, maybe the most creative thing that we've seen come out of the creative industries at the kind of mass media level has been this um, kind of invention of post-raciality, um, you know, the idea that to, to give people of color um, and women um, kind of opportunities to be represented in these more mainstream ways is to be uncritical of the very real lives and experiences that people are having um, off the television, right, or off the screen. And um, this is really important. I mean, I've been watching, you know, I, I try to stay on top of these kind of newer um, shows, Blackish, and, you know, these others. And it's been interesting to watch, um, not that show in particular, but other shows treat issues that are happening in the kind of contemporary. So, you know, taking, appropriating concepts um, of protest culture, uh, particularly around Black Lives Matter, and trivializing and making fun of um, and disparaging these really important movements that are happening around social justice. So I guess that's where I've seen the, the um, you know, if we have the forum or, you, you know, if, if the mic is passed to us in some of these spaces, um, to what degree are we using the art and creativity to cast a light on the the really important social issues that I think are happening both in the United States and beyond. And that is, um, you know, that's the place where I think we see the most powerful manifestation of corporate control over our media, which is to lock down or preclude the opportunity to have art reflect back to us um, any kind of critical engagement. Um, so if there were an opening, I would say those would be the kinds of openings that would be really exciting to see taken up. You know, we don't see our athletes and our entertainers um, taking up the kinds of social issues that we saw in the 60s and the 70s and even in the 40s and the 50s, um, not nearly to the same degree. So it begs the question, all this creative, so-called creativity, all this technology, all this distribution, all this sharing, about what? Um, in service of what? Those are, I think, the questions that are kind of uh, before us right now. Um, yes, please go. Oh, I'll just I'll just be brief um, to kind of follow up with what Sophia was saying. Um, you know, all this digitally networked economy in terms of providing new spaces for alternative economies, peer-to-peer, -peer, you know, sharing uh, spaces within which um, people can actually be creative. Um, you know, it also actually seems to be offloading risk of these traditional corporations because, you know, we have these spaces, people can um, create their desires, dreams, and make stories uh, within these spaces, which, onto which then, um, you know, corporations can actually just come in, jump in, and basically buy out and commodify those alternative spaces. I think, in that sense, two things that we might want to pay attention to is uh, the notion of commodification and also uh, a sort of political consciousness in terms of how we think of work, you know, um, and it, it applies to academics as well. Um, you know, what is the discursive operation that we make when we call uh, something creative and other things um, non-creative? You know, what does it mean to create, right?
think of themselves as people special that create things and not workers. Um, so in that sense, um, most of the time I'm a bit less uh, optimistic about the potential and alternative spaces. But then again, um, looking at the um, alternative organizations of uh, interns that actually Nicole um, has been doing some research and I think she's going to be in our conference as well. So um, <clears throat> on the one hand, we get to see too much encroaching of corporations uh, onto these alternative spaces and commodifying them. But at the same time, I think new generations seem to be seeing something wrong with this whole um, re-commodification of uh, the digital economy that is providing opportunities and then actually are taken from them. So um, that's, that's my thoughts. Um, yeah, I think there is some awareness of commodification, though I think there's always a need to spread that word a little bit farther and wider. Um, I am thinking about people who try and get their news, who get their news from uh, organizations like This Week in Blackness, um, or even following a hashtag Black Lives Matter, um, or following Twitter and Instagram accounts of key on-the-ground journalists and stakeholders who are reporting stories that the media is not. Um, those things are always happening online. I think like anything that resists hegemony, they are precarious and they don't often last very long um, because people need to eat and survive and oftentimes these things are not generating income. I get hope when I see communities coming together and actually directly supporting work um, and giving money to people who are doing work to advance culture and politics. Um, within entertainment that's happening a little bit here and there, uh, there are plenty of web series that now understand that you want to screen your series where you made it, in the city you make it, made it, especially if it's not New York or Los Angeles, to try and get community together. And when I think about how change might happen, um, speaking to Sophia's concerns especially, I think it's about bridging the digital and the lived experience. I think we have to come together and be able to talk about what's going on um, in our communities and what's going on in the world in order to actually form a political consciousness. Um, but I do think that digital technologies can help bridge those divides um, in an atmosphere where everybody is working so much and labor is so precarious, having something, someone tell you something on the internet, an activist group or a local indie producer give you a Facebook invite um, or an email or a tweet or what have you about something that's going on, and maybe you'll miss it four times, but you'll make it the fifth time and you'll meet other people who are concerned, who share an interest in culture or politics that's closer to live experience. I think that's not happening enough, actually, in the digital economy. I think we've fetishized our conveniences, um, the conveniences of digital technology too much, but I'm starting to see people try and push, the, push against that. And at least here in Chicago, where we're all stuck in our apartments all winter, people really do um, take it as meaningful when you come out and you're actually in a space um, together. And I think we as a society need to value that as much as we value, value the um, tremendous potential for entertainment and access to information um, on the internet because that itself is a skewed economy that cannot complete us, right? It's not um, in, a, in and of itself uh, capable of facilitating change. You know, one, of the, uh, one of the recurring issues uh, in the connected learning conversation um, you know, that the MacArthur Foundation has been supporting is around sort of reimagining uh, democratic futures, right? What does civic engagement look like? Uh, what do politics look like in kind of the connected age? Um, and so we've heard a few references uh, thus far to um, 
you know, uh, you know, various movements uh, that have been inspired, uh, uh, not necessarily caused by, but certainly supported and further enabled by, you know, new kinds of social uh, networks, new kinds of technologies, digital media, you know, Black Lives Matter, uh, the occupation movement. And I'm wondering, as we begin to, um, as we expand our notion of, of sort of you know, creative labor, digital labor, uh, you know, innovation, um, you know, what are we seeing or, or what are you seeing in terms of, uh, and Andreas made reference to this in one of his earlier remarks, around the politics of this, right? Uh, and I think each of you have made uh, interesting remarks uh, that point to, the, you know, the politics of participation, the politics of creative work, the politics of, you know, alternative kinds of industries and economies. Um, you know, are you excited by what you're seeing uh, in terms of kind of the front lines of this? You know, how young people, for example, are, are kind of leveraging these technologies, leveraging new networks uh, to really articulate, you know, new kinds of political identities, new kinds of political desires, uh, you know, new kinds of, uh, you know, political perspectives and narratives. Oh, I will go with this. Oh. And, and I asked, right, I'm just thinking about, you know, just a couple of nights ago, you know, the Democratic presidential um, debates, uh, primary debates, uh, and a question about Black Lives Matter. And, you know, and so could, could we have imagined that just a few short years ago, you know, that this, this movement, which has many ways been catalyzed by distributive sort of network technologies, uh, really sort of, you know, um, asserting itself, you know, in, in, the, in the conversation around, uh, you know, sort of national presidential uh, politics? Yeah, I was going to say that um, I think it's a, it's a great moment of opportunity and possibility with this kind of uh, innovation ecosystems that are being formed and the spaces that are being created. But precisely because of that, we need to start talking about the kind of obscure side or the dark side of the innovation economy and uh, of creativity as well. So just how you create, how do you diversify the networks of workers, right? Uh, and how do you crea create access to more social capital among minorities? So for instance, in these spaces, uh, in the game spaces or pop-up arcades that they are creating, how you invite more minority game designers to participate, right? For instance, in the spaces that I have studied, uh, what I have seen is a more inclusive uh, um, the space of opportunities specifically to, to women, women, so a lot of girls that usually have been uh, put aside in the spaces of game design and gameplay, they have started to be like sort of the protagonists of these video game arcades. Still, like they are usually white and well educated, but I see an effort of these communities with their sensibilities and their lifestyles to become uh, more um, open to diversity, but it needs to be a push, it, and it's not it's not by default that they are gonna uh, in, become diverse uh, because uh, because homophily and these other issues that we see in social spaces. But we need to raise the issues and talk about this uh, hidden side of the creative economy. So so the artists and the creative workers that I see them with the potential to be sensitive about these issues can start diversifying their social networks and become uh, do create spaces where uh, are more inclusive. I think there is a lot of potential, and I think it's what we are going to see in the next years, I hope so. Yeah, you know, I want to add to this. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think we think about, um, you know, we tend to think about everything as new. Um, you know, in many ways, the same kind of vilifications that we've seen of the Black Lives Matter movement 
um, were the vilifications that we saw of the civil rights movement in past electoral processes, right, of generations past. So we've we've got a um, you know, we had different kinds of communication channels then, right? We had Af we had African American newspapers, black newspapers. We had kind of brick and mortar spaces of sharing, churches, barbershops, beauty shops. Um, we had distribution networks to communicate, kind of a, a and organize um, politically. Um, and you know, we might ask ourselves the question of kind of like, what are some of the consequences and affordances? of new forms of organizing in, um, you know, digital um, networked spaces. So one of the, you know, um, certainly the affordances we know are that people can, through uh, platforms like Twitter and Facebook, they can um, stay connected, know what's happening, um, have a kind of a heightened information access to some degree. Um, some of the consequences are that are, you know, uh, hyper-surveillance of people participating in these kinds of political movements. And so if there were ever a time to be concerned about using the internet as, um, as a platform for politically organizing, I think uh, particularly if you're trying to organize any alternative to the mainstream um, or resist some of the kinds of more um, um, radical right-wing um, ideas that have started to become mainstream in the United States, then the internet it might not be so safe, so safe a place for that, um, given the high degrees of surveillance that happen in those spaces. So I think that um, you know, it's you know our our tendency is to think about um, and focus upon and and um, and the word is correctly has been used to fetishize um, the digital technological engagement. But I think that we have to think about. Um, you know what what it what might cost us. Um, what we also see is kind of more technology than ever and less democracy than ever. So you know we have to be thinking about the relationship between those things and um, to what degree the technological allows us to offload um, or not engage um, in ways that could be more. Um, uh, helpful to the kinds of social change that we that we might want to see in society. Can't hear. Okay. Sorry about that. I always managed to do that at least once, so I, I succeeded. I was able to to pull that trick off again. Uh, sort of just thinking about, I mean, each, each of you are doing what I find to be um, just really provocative, intriguing, uh, I think importantly, uh, extraordinarily timely research in terms of the things that you're looking at, the questions that you're asking, the sort of political resonance in those questions. And I'm wondering, as, as we think about um, the future of innovation, uh, you know, as we think about the future of opportunity, uh, this ever-evolving world that we live in, are there, are there questions, um, issues that you think um, are not being asked, or not being raised, or not being engaged in a sufficient uh, and, 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 and committed kind of way that, that, that strike you as urgent and that in some ways are percolating either in work that you're currently doing, work that you anticipate doing. I'm just wondering, um, you know, what, what is it that you think that we, we really need to know more about that still seems to be kind of a blind spot for us as, as it relates to, to the range and swirl of issues 
uh, that have uh, sort of surfaced here in this conversation. Do you want us to go in order? Uh, and maybe. There you go, Regan. Oh, um, I'll try to brief. I, I was just going to say, um, you know, questions about innovation uh, overall uh, to me uh, seem to me miss uh, something like relationality. You know, we tend to fetishize innovation and think that people all of a sudden, you know, in their in their networks, um, seem to be coming up with ideas that push the economy further, which is again exciting, um, and that's why we're having this conversation. But I think when we talk about all this uh, magical stuff happening here, but then you know, you know, thinking in relation to at the expense of what, and both in the contemporary moment and historically, you know, um, how are the resources being um, deployed uh, for these processes of innovation? And there's a whole cost that we actually seem to be also producing in, in terms of environment, I think, which we haven't discussed. Uh, and, you know, there's too much uh, probably time that we, we would need. Um, um, we, uh, all this innovation economy, producing all these magical commodities that we are all um, um, owed by, uh, again, at the expense of what? You know, who are these people? Like, uh, where does the design happen? who produces the hardware and where does the uh, recycling take place? Like what are the connections between these um, uneven geographies of production? I think that's something that we need to think about when we talk about innovation. Fantastic. Yeah. I want to just jump on that because, um, you know, Ergen and I have worked together and this is definitely the next major place for my research, which is about these kind of um, the extraction um, and disposal processes. I mean, we really in the United States tend to be so focused on production and consumption and engagement, but we really don't see the labor processes where people are truly exchanging their lives for um, the mining and the, the minerals that we need to make these devices that we're just in a, in a mad, desperate rush toward. Um, uncritically thinking about that, and when those we're done with those things, um, in the you know in the U.S. we think they go to the recycling center, but they in fact end up on barges that go to places again hidden from view, um, where giant e-waste toxic cities are um, popping up. And much of this work is happening on the continent of Africa, um, and this is a place where my research will go next. And I think it's absolutely critical for people who are invested in any kinds of conversations about technology and the digital to be um, at the forefront of the conversations about global warming um, because technology is absolutely implicated in global warming and we are somehow um, uh, I think preoccupied in some ways or distracted from um, what it will mean to not have a planet at some point in the future if we aren't really um, taking some thoughtful moments to pause and think about um, what the the long-term implications of um, our our excitement with these um, projects will be. Um, piggybacking off of that, I'm interested in the role that data, and maybe Sophia you can even speak to this, um, that data plays in the environment and the large amount of a space that's taken up by server farms and the incredible data rush from companies like Google and Dropbox and YouTube to house all, all this information that we're creating, um, it doesn't come at a cost. It's not sort of immaterial. Um, and I think about 
you know, the ways in which these companies are encouraging people to produce, uh, like Apple's new phone, um, taking photos that are also videos, which, you know, increases the data consumed exponentially and is going to force people to get new phones, right, with more data or to be on Amazon's cloud server so that they can store um, all of these images. I think that's tremendously uh, important. Um, I think also, like, the rise of television programming is another case, whereas you're producing um, 20 hours of television per show at the highest possible data rate. Producing small-scale television on myself, I'm burning through hard drives and thinking about all that I'm consuming um, and all that I will probably eventually be throwing away because none of these things last forever either, and companies want people up on the new technology. Um, so I think data, data as a resource um, and a moral economy of, da of data is an incredibly important issue for the innovation economy. Yeah, it's absolutely crucial. I think we can't. Um, we we also can't underestimate the the um, the social value, as my colleague Jean Francois Blanchet says, um, the social value of forgetting. Um, we don't. We, we don't know what the implications of not forgetting um, can be and there's some social value to um, not having every single thing recorded and stored in the cloud forever um, and uh, you know I was sharing with a student yesterday that you know she's of the first generation of, of, of women who will enter the workforce professionally who will have had um, their whole lives recorded and stored somewhere by someone potentially and you know what are the what are the potential implications I mean, we see already um, you know legislation that we need around revenge porn and um, all of the the kinds of um, horrific consequences of having everything kind of um, snapped recorded um, and brought back and again those things get disproportionately used against people who are already marginalized um, to keep people from um, having access or to reduce their, their social power. Um, the kinds of people who I, I'm thinking of um, my colleague Sarah T. Roberts up in Canada you know who, who studies um, con video content moderators Right, so all of the kind of psychological trauma um, that that people who screen the web for horrific content before it even gets to platforms like YouTube and otherwise, um, you know, the the toll, the human toll in in much of our datification um, of of everyday life is really really important, and I think it's important for people like us to kind of keep that um, bringing that information to the fore, so people, the public, can make different choices if we so desire. Yeah, I mean, I think you know what um, you know what I what's resonating for me in these last few remarks is um, you know something that that I think you're, 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 you've each referred to here, and that is um, the kind of ethical um, elements that are associated with these new kinds of innovation economies and practices, and um, and the and the sort of ethical um, you know dimensions and consequences, um, the costs. Right uh, of, of what's happening uh, in the world that we are all uh, participating uh, in, in, in the creation of, and so, I mean, these strike me right as, as sort of pivotal questions, uh, questions that hopefully, you know, young, thriving, uh, you know, minds and scholars like yourself will will really begin to uh, address in ways that compel us all, right, to to, to sort of think uh, quite carefully about the world that we're building uh, and, and how do we build not only a, a more equitable world 
but certainly right a, a more sustainable uh, world as well and uh, and that that may be the ultimate innovation right is sort of figuring out how do we how do we how do we do that uh, in a way that um, that, um, that that creates uh, you know a much more sustainable planet uh, as, as well as greater equity uh, in the world in which we're living um, so this has been um, this has been amazing, and uh, at, you know, at, at some point, uh, you know, unfortunately, we'll have to come to an end here. But uh, I don't know if, if any of you have any sort of final thoughts or remarks, observations, uh, maybe things that you have not had a chance to share that you'd like to say briefly uh, before we have to sign off here. And uh, and again, this has been uh, fantastic. Thank you so much. You are getting quiet now. <laughs> It was a great conversation. I can't wait to just uh, meet all these uh, brilliant people uh, in a couple of weeks. Thanks very much. Yeah, we're um, just in, in terms of the audience and for those who might watch this on the archive, um, in a couple of weeks here at the University of Texas, the Moody College of Communication, we're, we're holding a, a mini conference where we're just bringing in uh, the four uh, uh, scholars here as well as um, uh, four other scholars. Uh, just to come and 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 you know hopefully have similar kinds of conversations, hear about wonderful work that they're doing, uh, and it's also my hope, right, to maybe also game plan and brainstorm a little bit about you know how we can build uh, this conversation uh, and scale it in ways that might be uh, you know really provocative, really interesting, uh, and really promising in terms of how do we leverage uh, the insight. Uh, that you each are tapping into, and I think that would be a wonderful opportunity. Uh, we'll be sharing more about that, um, you know, in, in various places. But um, but we're certainly looking forward to uh, you know the ways in which this small gathering will help further rethink uh, the innovation economy uh, and what's at stake, quite frankly. So as as is per the case, um, I should um, I should sign us out here. And, um, and let me just say, um, uh, again, thank you uh, to each of you for being here and, uh, and for a, a wonderful uh, conversation. Um, you know, Nicole Cohen from University of Toronto was going to join us, and she's doing a lot of great work on freelance journalists and, and the way in which they are now beginning to think about sort of organizing uh, around, uh, you know, the whole sort of freelancer economy uh, and what's at stake in terms of uh, workers' rights uh, and, uh, and things that are, again, part of this larger kind of ethical dilemma and equation uh, that you referred to. Um, but this wraps up uh, the second webinar of this October 2015 series on doing innovation. Uh, but please feel free to keep the energy going on Twitter uh, using the hashtag uh, Connected Learning. Uh, there will also be a full video recording of this webinar available immediately on www.connectedlearning.tv with other curated content on the way. And so for those of you who are really interested in what uh, members here of the webinar have had to say, we'll have links to some of the research websites so you'll be able to follow uh, the really provocative, compelling, and important work that they're doing. Uh, if you found this conversation helpful, please share it with your networks. And if you'd like to know more about upcoming web webinars from Connected Learning TV in 2015, please visit www.connectedlearning.tv and sign up for the email newsletter. Uh, thanks again, everyone, and we'll see you next Thursday for our next webinar uh, on the last mile. Thank you. Thank you.